Next, this month's special series, Focus on Global Medicine. ReachMD is taking an in-depth look at how medicine is working toward health and longevity for people around the world. Join us all this month for the latest medical research and treatment across borders. Previous estimates trace the earliest signs of HIV in humans to Africa in the 1930s. Historical data indicates the disease made its way to Haiti, its first stop in the Western Hemisphere, and then eventually on to the United States. But we're learning that the disease may have circulated in Africa for decades before heading west. Does this new information about the origin of HIV offer any clues about the eventual demise of the virus? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Global Medicine. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon, and our guest is Dr. Michael Warby, Assistant Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. Dr. Warby is the lead author of research published in the journal Nature, updating our estimates of when HIV emerged in humans. Welcome, Dr. Warby. Thanks a lot, Mark. Good to be here. Well, Dr. Warby, tell us, over the years, we've seen different theories and research estimating the timing of HIV's emergence. Why is that this research offers such strong evidence? What we've done here is, instead of relying on modern gene sequences, which has until now been the main approach for dating these events deep in the evolutionary history, we actually kind of did the next closest thing to building a time machine and, and going back in time. We recovered gene sequences out of a very old sample, one from 1960. So these are HIV sequences, and that allowed us to kind of step that far back in time and from that vantage point look even further back to when we think the epidemic originated. And when did you think that originated? The first thing that we found when we looked at this sequence from 1960 was there was one other sequence available from a blood sample from 1959. And now that we had two from this early time period, we were able to put them side by side. And the first thing that leaps out at you is those two sequences were very divergent. So even back in 1960, the virus had already evolved a great deal of genetic diversity. When you then plug those old sequences plus a bunch of modern sequences into one of these evolutionary tree analyses that we do, they help calibrate how quickly what we call the molecular clock ticks along, and that suggested that the pandemic originated, we think, somewhere around 1908, plus or minus 20 years. Now tell us, many of the listeners may wonder, well, that's all and well, and that's certainly interesting, but why does that information make a difference in terms of us dealing with the disease today? That's an excellent question, and part of it is just pretty basic research, but with basic research, there are always angles that are important to the very sort of where the rubber meets the road. And I think one of the things that this allows us to do is to realize just how slow we were to realize that we had a new epidemic on our hands. So our dating suggests it was about 70 years that this virus was circulating in humans before doctors in the United States started realizing there were clusters of people with a new syndrome that didn't make much sense. And aside from HIV, that tells us there are potentially all sorts of other pathogens that might be circulating under the radar and, and maybe spending some more energy trying to discover those now would prevent the next HIV pandemic. 
now looking with specifically at, at HIV, how do you translate this kind of basic understanding into knowledge that matters for people today? I think part of it is it tells you how weak this virus is in one important sense. We think of HIV as, as this kind of invincible, nearly invincible foe, but what our results suggest is that there was a time when HIV couldn't get a foothold in humans. There were conditions prior to 1908 that probably prevented HIV from spreading, and then we made changes as human beings. So part of what this study does is remind us that there are also changes we can make now, not requiring any fancy vaccine development or any bells and whistles like that, but, but often simple changes that we can do that could potentially drive the epidemic near extinction. What kind of shape were these samples in, and how did you resurrect these samples? They were in pretty sorry shape. So I mentioned that there was this one available sequence from 1959 from a blood sample. So that was from a frozen sample, relatively well-preserved. And one of the reasons that there was a long time between that being published and our study was I think most people thought, well, we've looked at all the frozen samples from Central Africa that have been preserved. We're not going to find any other old viruses. So what we did was actually looked at non-frozen samples, paraffin-embedded biopsy and, and autopsy samples of the sort that pathologists generate all over the world every day and, and archive. And it turns out that you can get HIV gene sequences out of these things, it's just really hard. It's really damaged and fragmented, but it is there. If you have just joined us, you are listening to a special segment, Focus on Global Medicine. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill. Our guest is Dr. Michael Warby, Assistant Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. We're discussing the earliest stages of the HIV-AIDS pandemic. Dr. Warby, do we still think that the origin of the virus comes from chimpanzees? Yeah, so HIV, we think, is actually multiple viruses that have crossed into humans on numerous occasions. The pandemic strain, which we call HIV-1 group M, and unfortunately the nomenclature is a little bit illogical with HIV, but the pandemic strain, we think, comes from chimpanzees, and not just chimpanzees, but a specific population specific subspecies and we think that it crossed into humans somewhere in southeast Cameroon. There are other variants of HIV that are much more minor and local. Some of them come from monkeys called sooty mangabees in West Africa and there's even a gorilla form of the virus we found out recently but it looks like the chimp virus is the big one in terms of what has caused human cases worldwide. How did the virus get to the United States? Once the virus had jumped from chimps to humans and started a kind of slow burn in Central Africa, what it looks like is one of the first, if not the first, successful migration of the virus outside of that epicenter region was the same virus that was discovered in the U.S. in the early 80s. And a year ago, using a similar approach where we looked at archival samples of HIV, we found that there's a very strong kind of fingerprint of a migration event from Central Africa to Haiti preceding the U.S. epidemic. And then once the virus was in Haiti, a few years later, it looked like a single variant became established in the U.S. And then it was from there that the most cosmopolitan pandemic strain kind of 
spread worldwide. And it's kind of amazing that you can retrace these steps with gene sequences, but the signal is very strong. What makes the HIV virus so particularly virulent? It's virulent in some ways, and it's actually, compared to other viruses, not virulent in some ways. So the main thing it does, unfortunately, is attacks the very cells in our immune system that we rely on to kind of have an organized and sensible immune response. So it attacks these T cells that in a functioning immune system will basically organize antibody responses or killer T cell responses. And if you eliminate enough of those, even though you might have other components of your immune system still functioning, it's essentially eliminated your immune response. And that's why virtually 100% of people with HIV will eventually succumb to AIDS without treatment. And what about the non-virulent aspects of HIV? So often when evolutionary biologists talk about virulence, we think of it as linked to transmission. And often there is a tight link where if, if a pathogen breeds at a very high rate within a host, there's a lot of virus particles around and that makes transmission from one host to the next easier. And that high level of breeding is often linked to harm to the individual hosts. In terms of transmission, it looks like HIV is actually rather poorly transmitted from one host to the next, at least compared to other things like hepatitis B virus, for instance. If you come in contact with that virus, you're virtually guaranteed to get infected. Whereas with HIV, it actually has difficulty moving from one host to the next, which is why we think it was changes in human behavior, things like living in cities that were required to help the virus successfully move from one person to the next. Why do you think that the virus started in the animals, and did the animals get ill? So that's a good question, and just to zoom out and look at the rest of the picture, not just with HIV, there are all sorts of what we call zoonotic transmissions of particularly RNA viruses. So zoonotic, we just basically mean jumps from animals to humans. So you could put HIV on the list with SARS, influenza from birds, and all sorts of other really pathogenic viruses jump from animals to humans in all corners of the world. It just happened that the primates in Africa happened to be infected with the relatives of HIV. So that particular story is linked geographically to that region. Now, did those animals get as ill as humans do with this disease? Right. So it doesn't look like any of the naturally infected primates in Africa suffer AIDS-like symptoms, which it's, it's a very interesting question. It's probably something related to the long time that these animals have been associated with these viruses and that you have, in those cases, evolved to a lower level of virulence, either because the hosts have undergone evolutionary changes that help them manage the infection without becoming really ill, or the viruses themselves have evolved in chimpanzees and these other species to be less virulent over time, which is something you do see in other cases. At any rate, humans as naive hosts that haven't been exposed to this virus before, unfortunately, get these AIDS-like symptoms. And interestingly, other non-African primates like Asian macaques will also suffer an AIDS-like syndrome, which gives us a kind of model organism that we can study AIDS in. 
Does knowledge of how the virus has spread and changed make a factor in terms of our ability to how to eradicate this? I think it does. So not only does it tell you that the epidemic has turned on these kind of chance events of changes in human ecology and migration events, the evolutionary trees tell a really strong story about how much heterogeneity there must be in terms of these chains of transmission that over and over again you look and see that, for instance, virtually all of the U.S. epidemic traces back to a single patient. So unlike influenza, which every year you get lots of people traveling around the world and starting up little mini-epidemics, HIV seems to trace back in a lot of cases to single events, which means that if we can target the super spreaders in the population, those individuals who do most of the spreading of, uh, of the virus, whoever they are and, and wherever they are, that you could potentially eliminate most of the transmission of, of the virus. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Michael Warby. We've been discussing a revised look at the earliest stages of the HIV-AIDS pandemic. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to a special segment focused on global medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts for our entire library. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Global Medicine. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.